0: thirty seven of the book of Genesis. And, and before we begin, if you guys are there, if you'll turn with me there to Genesis chapter thirty seven, I want to begin by pointing to verse two. Okay? We're gonna come back and we're gonna read through it, but I wanna I want to start by pointing to verse two, which simply tells us this it says, This is the history of Jacob. And I want to point out to this verse before we begin because it reminds us that we're moving into a new section of Scripture. I talked about that last week, and we had this parenthesis in chapter 36. where We had the genealogy of of Esau, and and we studied through that. But we're moving in now to this next section of the book of Genesis. And and this next session, according to verse 2, is going to be devoted to Jacob's descendants, the history of Jacob. Specifically, his 12 sons, who we know that God grew up to become a might, the mighty nation of Israel. And the fact of the matter is, is the history of Jacob, which, which really tells us about one chosen family and how they became a mighty nation, how they grew from a family to a mighty nation, the Bible tells us, from who the King of all kings, Jesus, the Messiah, would be manifested to the whole world, right? God's plan, And really, the history of Jacob, which we see here, isn't contained to just the remaining chapters of of the book of Genesis. It's the rest of the Bible. That's the story. But regarding this history of Jacob, we see that the chief actor, if you want to kind of look at it that way, in the next 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, is is the chief actor is, is Jacob's most favored son, Joseph. And as we study the history of Joseph's life, we need to see that it can be read on at least three different levels. There's probably more than this, but three that I can can deduce as we're beginning to look at this. And and if we're simply to read this life of Joseph, this story of Joseph, this history of Jacob as literature, we discover really a fascinating story involving um, an adoring father, a pampered son some jealous brothers, a devious wife, and even an international famine. Sounds good, doesn't it? And, and from a literary point of view, we see that the life of Joseph tells a great story. And as a matter of fact, this story that we're going to be reading about, it's inspired many, many people, writers like Thomas Mann, a German novelist who wrote four novels based simply upon the life of Joseph. Or musicians like Friedrich Friedrich Handel, who composed a famous oratorio called Joseph and His Brothers. If you've not heard of that one, you've probably heard of Handel's Messiah. Actually, Joseph and His Brothers is the most famous. And if you were to go and listen to it on YouTube, you would hear it and you go, I've heard that before. But there's also filmmakers like David Mallet, for some of you 70s and 80s fans, who directed a musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Starring Donnie Osmond. Anybody see that? I watched it for like ten minutes as I was like, I'm like, this, I can't do this. I had to turn it off. <laughs> but if if you want, if you if, if you'd rather not come to church on Wednesday and pray with us, you can stay home and watch Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You'll be impressed. <laughs> but guys, the remaining chapters of the book of Genesis, it's much more than this dramatic. Piece of literature that tells an interesting story. And when we look a little deeper, as we will, as we study through this, we're going to discover really a historical account that is full of profound theological implications that reach deep into our lives today. And the hand of God is evident as we look at this in every single scene, meaning the hand of God is seen or revealed to us in, 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 the, in the way that God is ruling and overruling And that might kind of mess you up a little bit, but I'll explain it. But in where God's ruling and even overruling the decisions that people make. Will God overrule the decision I make? Is that what you're saying? Well, absolutely. Because He's got a plan. And we see that evident in this, in this this account. And in the end, we know that, that God, as He rules and overrules, that He really is building up a hero, Joseph. He's saving a family, the, 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 the family, the nation of Israel. And through them, He creates this nation who will bring forth a blessing to the whole world, just like God had promised He would through Abraham and his descendants. And through these events, we see the heart of God Ultimately, the heart of God who makes promises, covenant promises and the heart of God, who not only makes these promises, but keeps them no matter what. In addition to the literary and theological aspects, there's also a third level of this story for us, for those of us who have come to believe in Jesus, that we need to pay attention to. And this is because the life of Joseph gives us one of the best illustrations of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. Time after time after time, as we study through these, these next 13 chapters, you're going to hear me explain the examples, uh, the, 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 the things that Joseph did and the examples that he gives us that were also seen with Jesus Christ. For example, Joseph is like Jesus in that he was beloved by his father in that he was obedient to his father's will, in that he was hated and rejected by his own brothers, or his own brethren, sold as a slave, falsely accused, and unjustly punished, and finally elevated from a place of suffering to a powerful throne in order to save people from death. Joseph and Jesus. And obviously Joseph is just a picture, a type, He is not Jesus. Jesus is the sinless one. And even though Joseph was put in a pit and presented as dead to his father, we know that Jesus Christ actually died, was put in a grave, but he rose again. Furthermore, by the way, Joseph lived his life, guys, and by the patient and godly ways that he responded to the things that we see happen to him over and over and over again. I mean, It's the ultimate hard luck story where you're just waiting. You ever watch one of those movies where you're just, or those TV shows where you're just waiting and waiting for something good to happen to the hero? I'm watching one of those shows right now. And actually, it's a Netflix series. I, I, I would have recommended it until now. But I got through like 20 episodes and I'm like... I scroll down to see how many more. There's like 60 more episodes. I'm like, what the heck is this? So I'm going to give up on it because I can't handle the fact of waiting for the, the, the hero to have something good happen to him. You know, they just kind of string you on. Well, that's kind of like the life of Joseph where you're just waiting and waiting. And you're like, God, give him a break. Give him a break. And, and, and um, as we see this happening and, and, and we see Joseph patiently and godly responding to all these things happen to him, we can see what Jesus is like where he's patient, where he's kind, where he's long suffering and where he's loving. And you know, Bible tells us that we should be like that. We should not only be like Joseph, but more importantly, we should be like Jesus in that we seek to be like Jesus by the way we live, by the way that we respond to the things that happens to us. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 it says, "Therefore be imitators of Christ, Jesus, as or uh, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love." as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet smelling aroma. And guys, we can only do this when we keep in mind when we realize that God has a plan and he asks us to be a part of it, a plan for our lives, a greater plan for his kingdom to be brought forth in this world that we're living. And clearly this is important for us thing for us to seek to do to be imitators of Christ Jesus because as we imitate Jesus guys ultimately we fulfill God's plan in that we become living examples of him fulfilling the great commission and pointing people to that same grace love and forgiveness that we freely received through our faith in Jesus Christ so as we begin this next section and read about these events recorded here in chapter 37 we see, guys, really the destructive actions of a family who knew the true, the one true and living God, and yet they sinned against Him, and they sinned against each other by what they said and what they did. And as we read through this chapter, it's important to point out, guys, keep this in mind, it's important to point out that Joseph's actions that we read about here They did not create these problems that we read about as much as they revealed what was already in the heart. It exposed the problems. Nevertheless, what we'll see is that in spite of these sinful actions, that God in His grace overruled them, even the sinfulness of of, of these sons of Israel, that, that God overruled the sinful actions and in His grace... He turned them to good. And this should remind us of the words of Paul in Romans 5, verse 20, which tells us, Where sin abound, grace abound all the more. So if you'll join with me in chapter 37, verse 1, I'll read and you can follow along. It says, Now Jacob, he dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flocks with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah, or Zilpah and um, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the fields. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, "Shall we indeed reign? O- shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us?" So they hated him even more for his dreams and the words that he spoke. Then he dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and said, "Look, I've had another dream." And this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall you, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Then in verse 11, all of his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter <coughs> in mind. Now in verse 12 it says, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem that should be a warning sign to you <laughs> and in verse 13 it says israel said to joseph are not your brothers feeding the flock in shechem come i will send you to them and so he said to them so he said to him here i am then he said to him please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me and so he sent him out of the valley of hebron and he went to shechem now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field and he asked and the man asked him saying what are you seeking and he said i am seeking my brother please tell me where they are feeding their flocks and the man said they have departed from here for i have heard them say let us go to dothan so joseph went and found his after his brothers and found them in dothan now when he saw and now when they saw him afar off even before he came near them they conspired against him to kill him And they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and he said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands, and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, verse 23, when his brothers uh, came to pass to to his brothers, what well, Joseph had came to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, his tunic of many colors that was upon him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal, and they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gad with their camels, bringing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way, carrying them down to Egypt. And so Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by and so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit and indeed Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more and I, Where shall I go? And they said, And they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent a tunic of many colors and they And they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And and he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. And a wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn into pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son for many days. And his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down to the grave to my to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. And of course, verse 36 sets the stage for the next scene that we'll read in chapter 38. But let's pray. Father, I pray, God, as we read about Joseph and his life in the next few weeks, Lord, as we study through the end of the book of Genesis, I pray, God, that you would help us to see... Um, your plan and your will for our own lives, God, that we would trust you when we see things that don't seem right to us, Lord, that seem to be out of um, your control, that aren't pleasing or pleasurable to us, God, that we would act like Joseph, that we would live like Jesus, Lord, and and exercise patience and trust and faith in you. I pray, God, for anyone this morning, Lord, who is struggling, God, with who you are and Um, your desire to know them and your love for them and and even their own forgiveness. I pray, God, that they would see that um, you are more than enough and that um, your plan for their lives, Lord, hinges really around their faith in your son Jesus. And Lord, for us too today who have already gone to that place, increase our faith, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you look back with me to verse 1... There's a little note here that's easily overlooked, but we've got to recognize it. And it's the statement that tells us about Jacob now dwelling in the land of the Canaan where his father was a stranger. And I I think that's very significant and it's important for us to take note of in light of what we've been studying through in the previous chapters where it's told us about Jacob uh, because this points out to us how Jacob is back in the will of God. He set out in chapter 35 to do that when God said, come up from Shechem and go back to Bethel. And Jacob built the altar there. But we know there was this period of time where Jacob had deterred and he got outside of the will of God. And and now we see that he's back in that place. Furthermore, this verse is pointing out to us the fact that Jacob finally realized that his hope wasn't in this life. And that he, like his father had done, was looking forward to a heavenly home, living as a stranger or a sojourner in the land of Canaan like his father. And, and um, he was looking forward to this heavenly home that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. And if we look to the book of Hebrews like we've done before, we're told about this. And in Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10, remember it says this, by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place where he would receive his inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as a for, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That knowledge is so significant to this idea of being a part of God's plan. Because God's plan is so much greater than this temporal life that we live in. And in light of this, this, this passage in verse 11 and seeing where Jacob's at, we should once again be reminded of the fact that our own citizenship is in heaven. I know it's a repeated theme in this, in this book of Genesis, but it goes hand in hand with this call to walk and live by faith. And it's important for us to be reminded of it because, you know what, truly our time on this earth is temporary. And we need to live like Abraham. We need to live like Isaac. We need to live like Jacob. In that we also see ourselves as sojourners who have set our minds on, on, on eternity because we understand that we're just passing through this life and we're headed to a heavenly home. Because, guys, when we have our mind when we have our minds set on eternal things, it changes our perspective. It can it can it, it, it's just the natural recourse of that. It changes our perspective and and this is important because the way we view this life influences the choices we make and guides the way that we interact with those around us so that we can be the good examples of Jesus that we're called to be. And in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, we're reminded of this when it says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Why? He says, for you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And so, as we look at this life, guys, literally through the lens of eternity, and see the problems and the difficulties of this life that we face, that are, they are then put into a proper perspective. And I don't know you guys know that true is to be true, because when we face these problems in life and we get astray, to, we go we go off course, is because we've got focused on this life. We've lost we've lost sight of eternal things. Our mind's not set on Christ. But when we do this, we're strengthened. We're strengthened to respond in these times of difficulties in good and in honorable ways. In fact, this is something that is exampled throughout Joseph's life. But when we lose this perspective and get our eyes off of the eternal hope that we have been given, you know what? It's easy to become overwhelmed, isn't it? It's easy to become discouraged and, and even easy to become Carried away by our emotions, which lead us to do things that we later regret. As a matter of fact, Jacob's been an example of this. And when we consider Jacob's life, it's obvious that when he was not living like a sojourner, that he did some things that he regretted. Not only that, he did some things that had a negative effect on his sons. And this is now being manifested or revealed for us in this chapter. Guys, in Psalm 133, verse 1, it's one of my favorite passages, it says this. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I point that out as a point of contrast because as we read through this chapter, it's very obvious that Jacob's family did not enjoy this blessing of unity. And we know that it had been this way from the very beginning, that Jacob's home was, from its inception, was a divided home, was it not? If you remember, even though Jacob's first two wives were sisters, we know that they were rivals. We're told that they struggled with one another, that they they, they figuratively wrestled with each other. And we know that that family division grew when these sisters gave even their handmaids to Jacob as concubines to provide additional sons for him in this struggle or this battle, this division that was going on within their home. And so as you can imagine, think about it like this. Having one father, four mothers, and twelve sons living together as one family, there's going to be some problems. And the strife that existed between Jacob's four wives it played a role in the lack of unity that these brothers are now demonstrating towards one another. But in spite of the lack of this family unity, it seems like Joseph does it not got more of his fair share. And it should cause us to, to, to wonder why, to ask why did Joseph's brothers hate him so much? Why did they hate him so much? And the first of these answers to this, to the first of the answers to this. to this this question is is found or is told to us here in verse 2 where we're told that Joseph at the young age of 17 was out feeding his flocks with his brothers and in response to that being out there with them he brought back it says a bad report to his father now we might come to think that Joseph was nothing more than a spoiled tattletale who was only asking for the trouble that he got, right? But we must keep in mind that Joseph's actions, as I already mentioned, did not cause the problems that we read about. They only exposed them. They only exposed what was already in the hearts of his brothers. In fact, when we consider Joseph's willingness to report the bad conduct of his brothers, who were probably not taking care of the flocks like his father had instructed them to do so, we see ultimately that Joseph, Joseph, even at the young age of 17, was a faithful steward who acted with integrity. Furthermore, we see that Joseph was more concerned about pleasing his father and being faithful with what his father entrusted him more than what he cared about what others thought about him. And according to John chapter eight verse twenty nine, the same thing was true with Jesus, who were told always did what pleased his father. Always did what pleased his father. And guys, the same needs to be 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 true in our own lives. Such is the case with us. We always need to do what is pleasing to our father. And the point is, is there's. it's it's more important for us to live our lives motivated by what pleases God instead of uh, by what others might think or say about us. Have you done that? I think we all have. Where we've actually disobeyed God our Father because we've been concerned about what others may think or say about us. And even if it, was an outward, it wasn't an outward bold act of rebellion, it was certainly with little compromises, right? Those justifications by which we grant ourselves the freedom to do those kinds of things. But we cannot live that way. We must live by what pleases God instead of by what others might think or say about us because being faithful stewards over what God has entrusted to us completely hinges on that one thing. And that's what we see exampled here with Joseph. Sadly, stewardship is compromised when we stray away from the motive of pleasing God. Stewardship is compromised when we stray away from that motive of being pleasing to God. But we must keep in mind that when we're faithful stewards over the things that God has entrusted to us, the Bible tells us what will He do? If we're faithful in a little, God will what? Make us faithful over much he's going to give us more and such was the case with joseph here as we read on in chapter three and we're told about this coat of many colors this tunic you know joseph's coat obviously as we read here was a gift of his father's love and jacob had a problem for sure it was a gift of his father's love and and but it, but in this time in this culture this coat of many cor- of colors was also a sign of authority. Do you see that? And some people would even say that it was a sign that Jacob had chosen Joseph to be the heir. And some will look back upon the things that Reuben did, and then what Levi and and, and some of these sons did, and then we know that 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 jacob's mom uh, rachel was 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 going to be the first wife right and he would have been the firstborn from the first wife and so i don't know necessarily if that was the motive but at least we know that it was a sign of authority culturally speaking at the times and this coat was given to joseph because think look at it like this because he had aligned himself with his father's will And because Joseph had been faithful over a little, he was now with this authority being entrusted with much more. And you know what? This didn't set well with his brothers, did it? With his disobedient and devious older brothers. In fact, in verse 4, it tells us that they hated him and could not even speak peaceably to him. They didn't even try. And the fact that Joseph... Or that Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved his brothers is another reason foretold for why they hated him. But guys, listen, it's hard to assign any kind of blame to Joseph for this, for his father's outward demonstration of favoritism. Nevertheless, we're told that they hated, they hated their brother. And guys, this sin of hatred, it's, a, it's an awful sin. Hatred is a terrible sin. Why? Because it it's like a, it, it generates other sins. Hatred, the sin of hatred, generates other sins. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, it says this: "Hatred stirs up dissension." And in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in in verses 21 through 26, explained how hatred in the heart is the moral equivalent of murder. Right? And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And it's evident that this hatred that, was, that, that, that Joseph's brothers stored up and held in their heart was really the real motive for why they, in turn, would plot to murder Joseph. But as we read on, we see that envy in addition to hatred, also played a part. And in verse 5, if you look there, it says, Now Joseph, he had a dream, this dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. And so he said to them, Please, hear this dream which I have dreamed. He's pleading with them to listen to it. He says, There were. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and then behold, my sheave arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves also stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, because they knew exactly what the, what this was referring to, the implications behind this, and they, and they said, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for these words and these dreams. And then if you jump down back to verse 11 after Joseph had the second dream and went ahead and told it to them and to his father and mother, then it says that his brothers, listened to the word, envied him. His brothers envied him. Now I want to point out that some people, and maybe you too, I don't know, there was a time that I thought this as well, but some people think that Joseph didn't do the prudent thing by telling these dreams to his brothers, and that there may even been some pride in his heart. Going, ha ha, look, you're going to serve me. But the more I study these chapters, the total account of what kind of person Joseph was, I've come to the conclusion clearly that Joseph was not being prideful or boastful. This was not the man that he was, even at this young age. This is not the kind of person he was. Furthermore, if Joseph was telling the... If, if Joseph's telling of the first dream, let's just, give, let's just give this kind of thought to it. Even if the telling of the first dream was tied to some kind of youthful indiscretion where he wasn't being prudent, it reasons to conclude that even after that and after his brothers hated him for that, for telling him, that he wouldn't have then told him about the second dream, would he? He learned his lesson. He wasn't stupid. You guys, in light of this, I believe that Joseph's motive for sharing these dreams, the motive was Love. I believe Joseph's motive was love, because these dreams, what were they? They were the prophetic word of God. They were a truth about the future. They were a prophetic word of God that revealed God's will and by telling them to his family, telling his family about these dreams, we see that that Joseph was willing to speak the truth, that God had shown him, even if it meant that his brothers would hate him even more. And Joseph's example for us, once again, points us to Jesus, who was willing, we're told, to speak the truth of God's word to his brothers, the nation of Israel, and he did so knowing that they would even reject him, hate him, and crucify him. In both of these examples, Joseph's and Jesus are given to us given for us to follow because God has told us that He's made His Word and His will known to us, not so that we can take it and hold on to it, did He? He's given it to us. He's made Himself known. He's made His Word known. He's made His will known to us so that we might share it with those around us. That's part of His plan. Plan A. And He's called us to do this knowing He tells us that some are going to hate you. They're going to put you in prison. They're going to beat you. And He's told us to do this and He expects us to do this knowing that they may not receive it and even hate us for telling them the truth. And God requires our obedience in this, guys. God requires our obedience in this because He knows that speaking the truth is love and love is always better than holding back the truth simply because we're concerned about how a person might react to us when we tell it to them. Now granted, there's a right way and a wrong way to bring the truth, but nevertheless, we're called to speak the truth in love. In addition to hating Joseph, we're told here in verse 11 that I jumped down to that his brothers also envied him. And think about that for a second. <laughs> if they envied him based upon these dreams, it means that these dreams that told of how Joseph would rise up to a position of authority over them, that these dreams were somewhat believed by them in order for them to envy him. The truth of God's Word. (laughs) In fact, when we consider that Joseph's brothers were also envious envious of him, we have to see that, that, that envy, guys, is just as dangerous as hatred. Envy is just as dangerous as hatred. In fact, I've heard it said this, about envy envy is the most precious daughter of the devil because it she envy follows his footsteps by hindering good and promoting evil envy is the most precious daughter of the devil because it she follows his footsteps by hindering good and promoting evil and when we talk about envy we must also talk about malice because these two things are usually working together, envy and malice. In fact, this is exemplified for us in Titus chapter 3 and in 1, Peter 2, or in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 about envy and malice working together. And the best way to define these two sins is to say that envy causes us inward pains when we see others succeeding. And malice produces an inward satisfaction when we see others fail. And I think this accurately describes what was going on with Joseph's brothers as we see how the hatred and envy that was in their heart was leading them to do such evil things against their brothers. Against their brother. And in verse 12, we're told that then his brothers, they went to feed their flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, he said, Are you not, are not your, your, your brothers feeding the flocks in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And so he said, Here I am. I don't know if I'd have said that if I was Joseph. I would have been like, "Really, Dad? It's no secret they hate me." And and what about the place where they were at? Really, Dad? Shechem. You guys, we can't we, ha- we can't just kind of skip over this. This is the beautiful thing about studying God's word in context, because if you remember chapter 35, you remember what happened. In Shechem. And Shechem had been the city where Dinah, one of the daughters of Jacob, had been raped and where Simeon and Levi had sought revenge and murdered the inhabitants of the city. Remember, you make a deal with us. You guys get circumcised and we'll give give you our daughters and you'll give us your daughters. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And they went in there when they were hurting on the third day and they killed all the inhabitants of the men of the city, all the men of the city, and then they took all the women and the children and they took all the plunder. Shechem. And Jacob was afraid of what happened. He said, now all the other Canaanites, all the other people of the land, they're going to come and kill us for it. And God in His grace and mercy said, Jacob, you're not supposed to be here, remember? Go back to Bethel. And and, and even though it was a dangerous path, Jacob was more than willing to get out of Shechem. And so it should cause us, reading about this, should cause us to wonder why Jacob's sons, who had already been up to no good, remember, a bad report had already been given to them when they were out in the fields feeding the flocks. So these sons of Jacob's who had already been up to no good, why did they go back to this city that they had previously fled from, that God had called them to obey his command and leave? And to do it just to feed their flocks. I mean, if you're reading this story and you have any kind of common sense, you're looking at this and you're going, yeah, right. Down there feeding the flocks, right? <laughs> Shechem, not only was, 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 was Shechem a place where they probably shouldn't have been, it was 50 miles away. Three days journey. And, and, and in the Valley of Hebron, there was plenty of places for them to feed their flocks much closer. Why would you walk through one green pasture after one green pasture in a place where you were safe to go back to this? And obviously there was some kind of ulterior motive, and and they were once again up to no good. And the fact that Jacob was concerned for his sons and concerned for his flocks, it reveals that he knew that something wasn't right. So he was sending Jacob... Or Jacob was sending Joseph, who was faithful to go, hey, Dad, they're not doing the right thing, to go down there and find out what they weren't doing or what they were, instead of doing what they were supposed to be doing, and come back and give him that report. And so when Jacob found out where his sons had God, he sent Joseph to them, and in spite of their dislike for Joseph, uh, in spite of their dislike for him, Joseph, we read here, obediently went, responding to his father, saying in verse 13, he simply said, here I am. It's got to remind you of the book of Isaiah where 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 we hear the prophet Isaiah saying, Here I am, Lord, S- send me. Or or, or or even the prophet Samuel, you know, he went to the priest and said, I hear in this voice, and he says, Here I am, your servant is listening. And it's it's the same kind of idea, this humble submission to God. But when Joseph made it to Shechem, his brothers were not there, we're told. Matter of fact, we're told that they had gone even further to Dotham, which was even 13 miles further north of Shechem. And you know what this ended up doing is in putting Joseph in a very precarious situation very long way from home. And when we consider Joseph's obedience to his father, guys, we see another picture of Jesus. We see another picture of Jesus. In that scripture tells us how Jesus was obedient to his father, always doing God's will. In fact, we're told that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. Philippians 2, verses 5-8, through it tells us to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Now, when I consider the fact that Joseph's brothers hated him and the fact that Jacob suspected that they were once again up to no good, really in this place that they should not be, I wonder why he ever thought it would be a good idea to send Joseph to them. In fact, I would think that this could have been a task that could have been assigned to one of Jacob's many trusted servants. Why Joseph? And as I begin to think about this and try to process through it, when when all the earthly reasons would escape my mind for as why, why He would ever do this, I think then we are forced to look at the spiritual for an explanation. And when we consider what God did by sending His own Son, Jesus, into harm's way, and the obedience of Jesus to do this, knowing the end result, it becomes clear that with Jacob sending Joseph to his brothers who hated him, and who would ultimately sell him into slavery, that what was going on here was the work of God, the plan of God, the providence of God. The hand of God was working in this to accomplish His divine purpose for Jacob and for his family, and ultimately, we're told, for the whole world. And when you go to Psalm 105, verse 17 it explains and confirms this to us when it simply says this as it gives this account of Joseph and what God was doing. The psalmist writes and he declares this. It says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. And the fact of the matter is is God ordained it that Joseph would go to Egypt and this was the way that he was accomplishing his will and ultimately the way that God was accomplishing his greater plan. We're going to have to end with this, so uh, Justin, if you want to come up, so we're going to to stop here. But when we look at this, we have to acknowledge the fact that we're called to take this same mind. Called to let the same mind of Jesus be in us. And what does that mean? It means obedience to our Heavenly Father and obedience if it requires it or means it even to the point of death. And I know that you guys—if I was raise your hand and we say, "Okay, the Muslims are coming, they're taking over, Islam's reigning," and, and you're going to have to say, "Are you a follower of Jesus Christ or not?" And if you do, it's going to mean your life. That every one of you here would raise your hand and say, "I would die for my faith." But what we're talking about here is, this is not dying for your faith. We're talking about: Would you live for Christ? Will you live for Christ? and die to self in the process, going, God, your will be done, not my own. That's the greater challenge, is it not? And so as we look at this call to be in obedience to our Heavenly Father, even into the point of death, we have to see that we would, we're being called to be willing to humble ourselves and to crucify the wants and desires of our flesh in order to live according to the plan of God in the leading of the Holy Spirit. Going, here I am. I know it's not a favorable situation. I know it's not comfortable. I know it's not what I want. I'm a little afraid of what might happen. But here I am. And in doing so, guys, we put our trust in the fact that God has a plan A. That he has a greater plan. A plan for our good. Not not thoughts of evil, but a plan for our good. A plan that, guys, we're often unable to see in our finite understanding of things. A plan of good that he is working out not only in us and through us, and without a doubt, guys, this is what God was doing with Joseph. Let's pray. Father, thank You, God, for these encouraging words and these examples, Lord, that show us how to live for You. That helps us, Lord, again to put our trust in You. I pray, God, that that would be renewed in us again today. And that we would go from this place through our week, Lord, through the rest of this year until You come back, Lord, being faithful stewards over the things that You've called us to, over our families over our finances. And God, even more importantly, over this great gift of our salvation, Lord, through our faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and this wonderful call that You've given us, God, to make disciples, to teach them about You. Father, may Your will be done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.